0: Help us to love and to forgive each other. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, happy Shavuot. Um, today, in addition to being uh, Pentecost, is the Jewish, the Hebrew festival of weeks. That's um, when they offer special thanksgiving to God. It's it's um, the festival of first fruits, it's got all kinds of different things connected to it. And um, that's actually what the early apostles were gathering to celebrate in Jerusalem when um, because the name, the Jewish name for this holiday is the fifth week or Pentecost. So it is the, it's the Pentecost celebration. The, the disciples, the apostles were the first fruits of the new covenant. The Spirit fell on them, empowered those apostles 50 days after Passover and 3,000 new converts that very first day and that continued. In fact, um, many of you may have the mindset, I will wrap this into some of the sermons coming up, some of this um, new data that's out, but um, the concept that the church is dying in America, that Christianity is dying around the world, um, that, that evangelical Christianity is really struggling, um, et cetera, That that especially among young people, the people who are not connected to any faith at all is exploding, and all of those turn out to not be correct. Um, the statistics show exactly the opposite. This is actually becoming um, a less secular world every day. Um, and even in America, we see, new, we see church attendance numbers that are the highest, especially among young people, since the 1970s. Um, what we have seen is certain denominations dying out. The more liberal denominations are, in fact, dying out which is heartbreaking in some ways, but also those are the ones that that really across the board have walked away from the Bible as authoritative, from God's Word as authoritative. And those are, in fact, dying and shrinking, which um, is sad. In fact, often many of you may be people who have left churches like that, and you um, like about half of the people who leave those churches. About half don't go back to church. That is heartbreaking. And about half end up in an evangelical church, and we're happy to have you. Um, that is a, it's, it's amazing to watch this. The truth is that the church has continued to grow every single day from the time of Pentecost um, until today and continuing in that today. And again, I will wrap some of those in there. If you want to get ahead of that, um, part of why I've been reading about that is I'm preaching in Frisco next Sunday morning at, at Wayne Broderick's church, and he's using a book, um, there's a specific book, Confronting Christianity is the name of it. Um, And and if you want to listen to his sermons or the sermon series that he's doing in regards to this book, they're on on Frisco Bible's uh, webpage. And this last week's was an excellent uh, first blush glance at this material. It's very exciting. Um, I want to tell you that especially as a a day of Thanksgiving, like Shavuot is, um, I am thankful for you students, uh, very much so. Like many people in the ministry, I got my start in student ministry um, and see the power there and love the power of ministry with and for, and most importantly, by students. Um, The ministry that you do and that you have been doing all along in your schools, in your families, in your homes, with your siblings and with others, um, is potent. It's super powerful. Most of the apostles were probably about your age, um, even at the time of Pentecost. And so to recognize the, the significance of that, the importance of that is huge. Don't waste the ministry opportunities that are coming next in your life. Um, The the college experience is a lie shoveled to you by the world. We are ministers first. We are ambassadors first. Wherever we are, whether it is university or or whether we go to a job or we go to some other type of education or whatever it is, it is vital to remember we are ministers and ambassadors first. That's what we are first primarily and foundationally. Um, Know that you will always have a home here. Um, students, we're happy to have you here. we love for you to be here. Um, that's not settling for second best to stay with a church that you grew up in. That's, that's a, a silly worldly mindset that's always seeking something new and exciting. Now, if God calls you someplace new to minister and serve, go. And we're just as proud to launch you as we are to keep you, whatever it is that you choose. But no, you always have a home here with us. Um, and we really need to establish and grow at a new level a college ministry, This church is based on lay leadership, which means we need our college students to step up and help develop and create a college, a powerful college ministry here. So um, just make sure you're communicating about how you want to be involved with that as well, adults and students. Now, also one thing before we get started, I want to pray um, for our brothers and sisters at Green Acres. Today, Green Acres, which is a massive uh, church, some of you may have heard of it here in Tyler, Um, it is a... um, uh, they are voting today on a new head pastor, and when you've, got, um, when you've had the same lead pastor for several years like they have, and a, and a very potent one, a great teacher and a godly man like David Dykes, um, as he's retiring and, and somebody else is, is stepping into that role, man, that's tough. It's a tough new role for someone to have. It's a tough transition for a church. And so we want to pray and ask God's Spirit to really wrap the spirit of unity around our brothers and sisters at Green Acres today. So aside from thanking you, the God for the students and for all that's going on here, I want to pray for them as well. So join me, please. Um, Father, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, there are a lot of things to give thanks for, and there's a lot of things that are kind of scary. And, and uh, Lord, even as we were praying last week for uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the nation of Israel. Um, Lord, uh, the, the division there, we're praying against that, the, any type of division in regards to our brothers and sisters at Green Acres as they're voting today on a lead pastor. I am sure there are people with lots of opinions and lots of thoughts on the matter, and my prayer is for unity, that your name through this transition, that your name, the name of your Son, through the power of your Spirit, would be glorified here in Tyler as people from the outside look in and wonder in awe at the way that a church can make a very difficult, big transition and do so with the unity of the bond of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that that would be a testimony in our community. God, I thank you for the leadership of men um, like David Dykes and and others who have stepped in to serve and lead, and I pray um, that that transition will be one that brings you glory. I thank you for these students, and I pray that you would send them out um, to be powerful agents, powerful agents of your gospel, um, that everything they do, whether word or deed, would be done in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we give thanks to him, to you through him, in his name, amen. All right, so we're glad you're here. Um, it's good to see um, the crowds returning. It's wonderful to see you guys. It's such a blessing in my heart to see you guys all here, and they're so thankful. We know that there are many... Uh, many of you may be here with Pine Cove and other camps that are starting training and stuff this week, and we're, we're glad and excited to have you here and guests and others. Again, it's just, it's just such a blessing. We are in 1 Peter, and, uh, and it's, it's not too good news is if you're just getting back and you're just getting started, the good news is you're only like five verses behind, um, which is awesome. The bad news is that's like seven or eight weeks of sermons, and so you need to go back and, and you can catch up with where we are. I'm going to start in verse 5 today. Um, and go from there, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Obviously, that's the middle of a thought, so you're going to have to go back and pick up on some of that, but the basic summary is this. You, Peter is saying, you, my audience, which I think in many ways is us, we are the church scattered around um, in places that Peter could not have imagined existed, um, but that's, um, you face persecution, he says, you face intimidation, dismissal, harassment, and possibly worse. But you also realize that there's an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept secure by God's power through your faith, and that inheritance is ready. It's a ready inheritance. The limitless creativity of a God with limitless power, whose desire is to express to us His limitless love, grace, and kindness the fullness of this will be unveiled when Jesus Christ returns. Now you may be like me. I was I I, I grew up nervous about heaven. Um, I'm attention deficit enough that the idea of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp in an endless worship service did not sound like a positive experience for all of eternity. Um, that would be boring in a few seconds. Um, and so to to recognize, man, this sounds like a horrible place. This heaven place is going to be boring. It's going to be tedious. And, and I, by the way, my vision of what a worship service looked like isn't even cool or fun or well done. My vision was of something that was already tedious in the 20 minutes on Sunday morning that I had to, had to suffer through it then, much less doing that forever, did not sound like a positive. It sounded like eternity, but not heaven. Um, and so... Knowing, realizing that who we're really dealing with is a limitless God who's, who's got this surprise for us, we'll talk more about this, got this surprise for us, that is, he he comes from a place of him being limitless in his love and mercy and kindness for us. There's no limits to that. And his ability to show that is limited only by his power, which is limitless, and only by his creativity, which is limitless. And this is what Peter's pointing out. <coughs> you face these hardships, but you have this inheritance and you know it's... So how do you respond to that? Verse 6, in this, you rejoice. In this, you greatly rejoice. It's a positive thing that you go, wow, this is!" look at this. I, we celebrate this. We sing about it. We, we rest in it. We comfort ourselves with it. Okay, we get this one little phrase, in this, you rejoice. But Peter immediately jumps into, but as excited as we are about this future, about this inheritance, our rejoicing is complicated. It's a little incomplete, it's diminished, it's, it's moderated. Why? You greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perish as though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, first note this. Peter is making a clear distinction between the inheritance and the trials. So the inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. The trials, though now, for a little while, if necessary. Those are are clearly playing off of each other. They're there, they're temporal, they're not necessary unless they are for this time. And they're only for now going to spend more time here than Peter intends, by the way. I'm going to spend more time on this trials and temptations section than I think Peter probably intended. Um, I think this is meant to be read over, and we're supposed to nod and go, yes, got it, and keep moving. But I feel like we need to unpack it uh, for a few reasons. I happen to know that there are many in our congregation, and this is probably always true, but I know it, that are facing tests and trials and are wondering, are these necessary? Are they really necessary? Peter's going to give us some examples. He's going to give us some examples of trials and temptations and the things that we face. 1 Peter 2.12, he's going to talk about that we're going to be spoken of as evildoers. That literally because we're Christians, we're going to be called the ones who are evil. That we're the ones who are bigoted or biased. That we're the ones who are backwards or outdated. That we're the ones who are actually the wicked, evil ones. We are the bad guys. 1 Peter 4.4, he says we're going to be treated like we're outcasts and oddballs. Um, that we're the ones with the problem, not everybody else doesn't have the problem. Peter's also going to reference before he's done physical punishment for doing what is right as one of the things Christians can face. So what comfort do we have? Are these trials necessary, all these difficulties necessary? On James 1, (coughs) and those of you who are familiar with Scripture know you have to go to James 1 when you talk about these things. James 1, the the little half-brother of Jesus Christ, James says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" The language here is so similar to what Peter has said. "'The tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ.'" My thesis is going to be similar to that made uh, by a Christian author named Kathy Miller who says our children need to be needy so that they will need God. One of the things that I think we, we struggle with as a culture because we're so wealthy and we're so opulent is that, is that we, we want to do everything we can to protect our children from facing any hardships. We, we're helicopter moms and we're lawnmower dads who are hovering over to make sure nothing, nothing negative, that our children don't suffer or face hardships or face difficulties, or we're, we're, we're running ahead of them with the lawnmower to make sure the grass is nice and, and level and, and flat so that it's easy for them to go on. And this is, this is not the only things our children need. In fact, I really do think that there's something um, about this inner, inner, in, intertwined or, or, or um, a vital part of why God has given children mothers and fathers. This is not a universal by any means, and over time, most parents learn how to integrate both of these concepts, but especially early on, you may remember that the natural tendency, again, not universal, but the natural tendency a lot of times for moms that kids need is that moms tend to accept children's version of reality. So when a child comes and says, I hurt my knee, usually moms are going to go, oh, I'm so sorry you hurt your knee. Can I look at your knee? Let me kiss it and make it better. How do we, All right? We're going to take care of that knee. I'm so sorry you hurt your knee. And meanwhile, dads do not accept children's version of reality, right? So when the child comes to dad, dad, I hurt my knee, he's going to go, but did you? Really? I mean, is it hurt? Let me look at it. You're fine. Walk it off, right? Put some dirt on it. Get back out there and play, right? That's all you... And, and children need both. We need that. And again, like I said, a lot of times moms, especially by the third child, they've given up on that and they're like, eh whatever kid, right? But the, but the, um, or, but or over time, hopefully most of us as parents, we learn to kind of integrate both of those and get better at knowing, okay, when is the time to tell them like, you're fine, get up. Or when is the time to, to really comfort them? But, but notice we all need that. And we have a heavenly father who's like that, who knows that there's a time to say, no, no, you need more. And we go, I can't take a bit more. And he says, I'll bet you can watch. <laughs> and there are other times that we're like, we're like, oh, I can't take anything more. And he's going to say, you're right, you can't. Let me comfort you. Let me hold you. Let's get the still and quiet. And, and, and we go through those, and God knows that. God, like a loving father, chastises, disciplines, and like a loving mother, wants to put his wings around us and comfort us and protect us. Both of those are good things that we need. Sometimes the suffering is necessary. It does have value. It can have value. A generalized sense of the value when we face hard things. Many of you, we actually have many people in our church who run gyms and, and run um, exercise type of opportunities and that kind of stuff. We have many who are dietitians and that kind of stuff as well here in the church. And, and that's a, that, that's, this is another one of those expressions, right? Did you go, well, when you go to your, your workout coach, you're like, oh my gosh, is this suffering necessary? What's he or she going to say? Well, it depends on what you want, what results you want, isn't it? It kinda depends on how you wanna turn out. It depends on where you wanna go. So, and we we get, I don't know about you, but when I get the the diet and exercise type memes that hit, man, I identify with every one of them. There's a couple that hit this week that I was like, this is is me, I really wanna lose weight, also me, right? By the way, in case you can't read it, her shirt says, the sugar made me do it. (laughs) Which is pretty awesome. And then ones like this. These are my. These are actually my favorites. When you kind of want abs, but you kind of want to eat 17 donuts and three large pizzas, right? <laughs> like that. That combination. Go like I want the results of suffering and struggling. I just. I just don't want to suffer and struggle, right? I want the results of that. I can't believe no one has invented a simple pill yet that I could take that will make me skinny but won't kill me. I mean, I know they exist that'll get you skinny, but they also kill you. So that's a that's a bad side effect. So the to go. How do we how do we do that? How do we engage with that? That is a, well, struggle and pain are a part of growth. They just, they just are. This is part of the case. Again, I'm unpacking this more than I think Peter would have intended, and I have to be really careful with this one, because this is this, I'm going to give you a, a, an everyday analogy, a parable, a living parable of what it is when humans try to solve our own problems here. Some of you may be old enough and aware enough to remember Biosphere 2. So Biosphere 2 in the 70s and 80s in particular, Biosphere 2, by the way, it's called Biosphere 2 in such a, this is, how, how's this for kind of an Earth Day feel because the Earth is Biosphere 1 and this is Biosphere 2. So Biosphere 2 was created first, it was these seven biomes and what it is is humans were going to prove that you could go live in an encased biome like this and put in all the plants and everything you need and then shut the door and keep it shut and exist forever. That they could just stay there, right? This was because humans, um, you know, we're, we're going to all live in perfect harmony with nature in our little biodome. That was what was going to happen. That was the plan. And so people went in, they, they set it all up, they got it all ready, and then they shut the doors behind them, and things began to fall apart rather quickly. Um, so the idea, some of the things they had a really hard time with was keeping the oxygen and CO2 levels at the correct levels. This is pretty important for human beings. Um, it turns out they nearly, like they, there were times when they nearly died because they couldn't get these things to balance out correctly the way they are intended in nature um, and happened, by the way, without a lot of human effort in nature. Um, as, as well as they had a real problem, no one's surprised by this, but they had a real problem with roaches and ants right? Everybody's shocked by that, right? That this is a, it turns out that there are things in nature that aren't working with us, like they're not playing kindly with us when it comes to this kind of thing. That was a real problem. In the end, by the way, so again, you can imagine I could unpack this for weeks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it up here. In the end, this was meant to be the big test of man versus nature, Can man survive? Could we, in a nuclear holocaust, could we set up biodomes and live inside of them and not have to get anything from the outside? Things got so bad in Biosphere 2 that people were actually at risk of their lives, and yet the scientists and, and business people who created it were afraid to admit failure, so they weren't telling the truth to the people whose lives were at risk inside the biodomes. People began to have to sneak things in to the biodomes to keep the people inside alive, which kind of negates the whole purpose. Um, And by the end, lawsuits were being filed, criminal charges were being threatened. Um, In the end, here's the kind of summary, in the end, the human attempt to live inside were at actual risk for their lives. Money, politics, human egos, and temper, in the end, ended all of the large-scale experiment. It was supposed to be man versus nature. In the end, it was, of course, man versus man. Of course it was. All of that, I I could have a heyday with for hours. I want to focus on one thing about Biosphere 2, though, that stood out to me in regards to our question, is it necessary for now, if necessary? Here's, a, here's one, of the, one little piece out of the summary at the end. The trees inside Biosphere 2 grew rapidly, more rapidly than they did outside of the dome. But they also fell over before reaching maturation. Why did they fall over? Their root systems were bad and weak, Why were their root systems bad and weak? Anybody know? There was no wind. I heard someone say it. There was no wind. It turns out without, I'm still quoting from one of the final um, papers, without stress wood, a tree can grow quickly, but it cannot support itself fully. It cannot withstand normal wear and tear and survive. And the way you create stress wood is with wind. And they couldn't create more than a gentle breeze. So the trees grew big, they grew tall, and then they fell down. Is suffering and trials and temptations, are they necessary? It depends on what you want to happen. Much less the individual things. So think about this at the individual level. The lessons of the wilderness. If you've read your Bible, think about the great men and women of Scripture And almost without exception, we have an example of when they faced the wilderness early on in their walk. They faced the wilderness, and they stayed faithful through the wilderness, and then they get the opportunity to do something else at another time. We love studying guys like Daniel. We forget about the fact that he was a young man kidnapped from his home and taken to a foreign land and mistreated there. We forget. We love King David, but we forget that he spent several years hiding in caves, going hungry, and without a roof over his head because his own king was hunting him down trying to kill him. See, we, 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 we forget about that, that in order to get these people, sometimes this is part of the process or the lessons of the wilderness. Incidentally, I'm not going to spend any time here, but 2 Corinthians points out that suffering helps us come alongside other people when they suffer. It makes us better ministers. But here's the analogy that Peter uses. The testing of gold. By the way, I, part of why I feel, un, I feel comfortable pack, unpacking this a little more than I think Peter probably originally intended, is that he isn't the only one to make this analogy in Scripture. A lot of people do. Proverbs 17.3 says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Others mention it as well. Jeremiah does, Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Job a couple of psalmists, Daniel, Paul, and Jesus Christ, all mention the refining of metal as an analogy for the Christian walk. I don't know how much detail Peter knew. Peter was a fisherman. By this time in his life, how much did Peter know about the refining of metal? I don't know. I don't know how much he intended this to be unpacked, but I think it's worthwhile for us to have just a very quick general picture. Um, I couldn't find a really clear short video to show it, so I'm just going to show you some of the basics. You start with raw gold... The metal is washed with various chemicals to remove all the impurities. We have lots of different impurities with different types of chemicals. That was done then. Now it's even more complex. Then it's put into a crucible. In modern times, the crucible can reach 1,400 degrees. The gold is melted, turned into liquid, and all the impurities are burned away, or a lot of the impurities are burned away. Then washed again, liquefied, bathed again, and turned into gold sand. Then it's cooked again and turned into grains of gold. Then it's melted again in order to be poured into molds for bars, coins, thin strips, or whatever usage it's going to be. The, the gold itself is special because it is rare, because it's refined, because it's beautiful, and because it's malleable. It's something that you can put very fine detail work on. And so, and so you go, this is, this is something that you say... This is, this is the value, the preciousness the, 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 of gold. It faces all of this and it creates something so beautiful. So the question is, is the faith testing process, is it necessary? I can tell you this. According to Peter, the genuineness of our faith is worth more than refined gold. It's worth more. The whole testing analogy isn't even Peter's main point, at least in this passage, His point is this. Our faith is more precious than gold. Why? Two reasons. One, because gold eventually perishes. Even though it's refined by fire, gold perishes. And our faith doesn't have to. True faith doesn't. Instead, it's proven. It is proved genuine. Holding fast to His promises. Having obedience to His ways, not ours. His preferences... Not ours. His rules, his guidelines, his instructions, not ours. Submitting all the way to trials. Potentially the loss of jobs, status, college degrees, opportunities, persecution, and death, if necessary. How much more is it worth? Gold perishes. Despite all that it faces to be created, it still, in the end, perishes. What about when our faith is washed and put in the crucible And instead of being destroyed, is instead refined. This is the picture that Peter is giving. That the genuineness of our faith, the provenness of our faith, is worth more to God, is worth more than fine, refined gold. Why? Because the gold, as precious as it is, as sturdy as it is, as valuable as it is, eventually it goes away. But our faith is forever. This is how Daniel heard it. This is one of the speakers speaking to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, if you remember. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. Kind of mixing metaphors there. The idea of, of clothing that is perfectly clean, perfectly bleached, white, and metal that is flawlessly refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Let's just make an agreement among ourselves, if you are a Christian, to stop being surprised when the wicked act wickedly. Let's stop being stunned and somehow deeply offended when the lost act like the lost. Let's just recognize that. It's, it's how that's going to work. You, you, don't, you don't look into the world for wisdom and righteousness. That's a, that's a, you, don't, you don't do that. When Christ is revealed... This is the second value of our faith. When Christ is revealed, what's going to bring Him praise, glory, and honor? Is it gold? No. Remember that in the New Jerusalem, gold is asphalt. It's, it's something that's that's used as a refuse material. It's not, it's not special there. Diamonds are, are sheetrock, and, and gold is caliche, and, and the type of gold that we would the type of gold that we would bring anyway isn't fine enough, isn't refined enough to be used to fill potholes in the new Jerusalem. Of course it doesn't bring him glory. That's not what brings him glory. It fades. It goes away. It's perishable. It's tainted, and it's fading unlike our faith, which is refined, proven to last, and be purified. This is the great reveal. What has the artist done one of the things we're going to talk about is how, how amazing it is that God has this inheritance, this surprise in store for us. And, and we don't know all about it. Like I said, I don't, I don't know exactly what the experience of the new Jerusalem will be like, what the experience alongside God in His rule will be like. We get, we get snippets and hints and, and bits and pieces, but we don't know beyond the character of God really what it's going to be like. Um, I mentioned in the first service, this is the thing I, I, I said about you, Ginger, is that my wife, some of you guys really love surprises. And some of you really don't like surprises. So what I, what I learned over the years is my wife really likes surprises as long as it's 100% good, right? Like a, it needs to be 100%. It's a good to have a surprise, but the surprise needs to be a 100% positive surprise. If a surprise is like, uh, eh, then that's, that's, not, that's not a good idea. That's not what she enjoys. And so to go, what do I know about this surprise that's coming? Do I know exactly what it's going to be like? No, I don't. What I know for sure is that it's going to represent the character of a Limitless God who loves me limitlessly and limitless in his creativity. What exactly will it be like? I don't know. It's gonna be good. He is good. And we sing that because we know that he is the one who's prepared, He's got this, He's preparing a place for us. He has this inheritance for us. It's gonna be crazy, it's gonna be off the wall, it's gonna be outside of anything we can imagine, and it's gonna be good, and it's gonna be surprising, and my suspicion is it's gonna be surprising every day. And every day will be new surprises that are all good. They're things that we couldn't have even imagined the day before. That's what we're looking for. So when Christ is revealed, what will bring him? Is it going to be gold? No, no, no. No, no, no. The great reveal is going to be the artist. The art of the artist. I want to comment. This this created a, a concept for me I wanted to reference that's the, the idea of, so a few years ago, I got to talk to Deborah Harder, who is a, um, she runs Sterling Grace, and one of my dreams from the time I was a young person was the opportunity to make a family ring, to create a family ring. And, and I thought, well, I'll never get a chance to do that, but that would be cool if I could ever figure it out. Well, I, I get to know a, a uh, in, in Deborah, I get to know a silversmith, and so so we sit down one day and we, we're working on the design. I'm telling her what's important to our family and I'm giving her all this information and, and the, the mottos and the symbols and, and all that kind of stuff. And then she, um, so she divines it and draws it out and we, we edit it and change it. And then she creates this little wax, this little green wax example, a little green wax model. And let me tell you, it is radically unimpressive. Um, it, I'm like, that's it? Like, that's, that's it. This little green wax, like, that was a lot of work for that. And she's like, be, be patient. So then she makes a mold out of that, that little wax, green wax thing. She makes a mold out of it. And then she sends the mold in. And, and they come back. And she's got this little package. She calls me. It's ready. Come see it. So I come up to her place. And she opens it up and unwraps it. And I'll tell you, it is so cool. I mean, the, the praise and glory and honor that I heaped on her. Oh, my gosh. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I cannot wait. And so our kids get these when they graduate, and, and, and we have them. It's, it's this cool thing that I thought would never get to happen, and yet it still did. This is the picture that, that comes to my mind. Our faith, our refined faith, will result in praise and glory and honor. Word and action and emotion, as one commentary said of Christ. When I stand strong and hold fast, the result will be a refined faith. And a refined faith, when Christ is revealed, will bring Him praise and glory and honor. As hard as it is, keep this in mind. Just like your gym coach would tell you, the result is worth the effort. Some note that the praise, glory, and honor may be coming not only, by the way, from all of creation to Him because of the artwork, but coming from Him to us as well. Remember that when we, our desire is to hear the phrase from the parable, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is praise and glory and honor to us, His servants. One commentator about this passage referenced the woman who poured pure nard on Jesus' head. In Matthew 14:6, but Jesus said, they, they picked on her about it, but Jesus said, "Leave her alone. Why do you trouble you? Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me." Notice that he heaps praise on her. She's done this beautiful thing. In fact, he tells her, "This story will be told from now on." And incidentally, it is. Here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about it. Would there be anything more cool than to know that 2,000 years from now, people would be talking about something you said or did? And yet here we are. This is praise and glory and honor from God to her. God exalts those who are humble. We're looking to pray to bring praise and glory and honor to Him, and He loves doing the same thing for us. Peter acknowledges the difficulty not being able to see the final product. Yet listen, there's no denying this. Peter knows this. We experience this. Verse 8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Can you imagine how impressed Peter must be with us? ever thought about that? Remember what what Jesus told Thomas? So remember when Thomas, who would not believe that Jesus had come back, Jesus comes back and shows him, and says to him, of uh, John 20, 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I don't know about you, but I've never gotten to stick my hand in Jesus' side. I never got to put my fingers in his wounds. That, I, I'm, I'm the one he's talking about here, and so are you. Blessed are those who won't be able to get what you get, won't be able to see all the things you do. Imagine, Peter's story might have ended with denial if he couldn't have had breakfast with Jesus. Thomas' story might have ended with denial if he couldn't have met Jesus and put his hand in his side. I actually think this passage probably is read like this. And though you haven't even seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice. I think Peter's impressed. I think he's proud of us. That even though we didn't get the evidence that he got to get, we are willing to accept and believe. Can you see how impressed he would be? Peter's Story might have ended so differently without if he was in our shoes. I've always read this as him being proud of us. And why, he says, why are you so full of joy? Because you're receiving the goal of your faith. You're receiving the outcome of your efforts, the prize at the end of the race, the goal, the outcome, the end, the result, the object. Maybe we should say we are receiving the living hope of our faith. Hopefully we're living as though that's true. Hopefully we're making the types of decisions that show we're living in that salvation now. Gold perishes, but not our inheritance, not the salvation of our souls. Our faith, challenged by the limits of our experience, for sure, guards the inheritance, but it does so in God's power. When it is proven genuine, it means praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. This creates a picture for me that I want you to, I want to share with you. I want you to share this picture with me. I want you to hear this and think about yourself in regards to this. I want you to think about your, your spouse in regards to this. I want to think about your kids, or your parents, or your friends. I want you to think about the person who you're going to hand a credit card to after you have lunch or when you're checking out the grocery store. We are his workmanship. We are his treasure. We are active participants with the artist, but we are the art. He is the artist. So when the little jewelry box is opened when the blade is drawn from the scabbard, when the blanket is dragged from over the sculpture, when the pianist stands up from playing the masterpiece, or when the credits roll, when he is revealed, so is our faith. And at that moment, the crowd will come to its feet in thunderous applause, with broken hearts, weeping with joy at the handiwork of this artist. And what he has done with us and through us. This is the moment of our living hope. This is our inheritance that we look to. This is who we are. We are his treasure. And then we're meant to live that out and accept that the other people around us are treasure like that. That's what we're looking for. So if you will, stand with me. I want us to pray together and embrace the truth of this, that we are His handiwork. We are His workmanship. We are the art of the artist. And He has good works for us to accomplish that He's prepared in advance for us. And to be looking at our lives and asking, am I living as though I am in my faith like refined, metal, a beautiful thing, showing off the artistry? Or am I settling for less than that? Am I embracing sin to tarnish or entangle? Am I, am I looking to Christ to guide me? Am I trusting in His definition of me? Especially for our young people who face a pressure to find their identity in anything other than Him. To find the foundational. The, the truth is, there is no praise or glory or honor that we need except what comes from Him. Every other praise and glory and honor is empty and usually badly motivated. But from Him, that's what we're working towards. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful that You are a type of God who would hardwire, who would weave into reality the parables of Your love for us, like the work of the blacksmith, or the jeweler, or the weaponsmith, or or the artist, the pianist, the composer, all these different things. Lord, that You have hardwired... The creation of art into us to be a living parable of the way you work in our lives. And Lord, I know that sometimes the hardships are, from a perspective of getting what we want, necessary. I pray you would comfort us and and show us that you're there and never leave us or forsake us, but instead be changing us, refining us, taking us through whatever the wilderness is so that we're that much more prepared to reveal you through our faith, and to bring praise and glory and honor to the name of your Son. And that is our ultimate goal. Lord, help us do that together here as a church in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So I want you to be listening to the Spirit. This time of invitation that we have here, this isn't just some tradition that we do because it's just something Baptists do. That's not what this is. This is a time for us to be still before God. I would encourage you. Sometimes we're tempted to leave during invitation just because we're like, ah, it's not for me, whatever. I know that some people have tasks they have to do to take care of. That's fine. But in general, I would love to to encourage you. Make sure you are planning to stay and sit and either be still or to pray or to come pray. Or if you've been through our Welcome Home team and you're ready to come join this dysfunctional family that you could come forward at this time. But listen... Now is the time to be listening to what the Spirit has for you. Don't waste this few minutes. Sing, pray, listen in silence, whatever it is the Spirit leads you to do. Um, Guys.